2: Have a chance to ride out this omicron wave without shutting down our country once again you have sat there too long for all the good you have done in the name of god go we need to recognize that russia is now calling the shots here
3: mad in their sleeves with a divided party a prime minister losing the support of his backbenchers and governing shambolically
1: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke.
2: Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Coming up today, we'll be speaking to Aidan Connolly from the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium and to Carol Monaghan from the SNP.
1: But first... Boris Johnson is trying to hit the reset button. We start the week in Westminster with a new team at number 10. Reeling from the resignation of five aides in 24 hours last week, the Prime Minister has brought in Cabinet Office Minister and current MP Steve Barclay as his Chief of Staff and Gitto Harry, a former aide from when Johnson was Mayor of London, who starts his job as Director of Communications today. Johnson, of course, is in a race to stem the flow of no confidence letters. The Sunday Times says that the Prime Minister is preparing for a vote on his removal as soon as this week.
2: Meanwhile, plans to tackle the backlog of patients on NHS waiting lists in England has been put on hold. Health leaders were expecting the government to set out today how it intends to catch up. There are six million people waiting for treatment in England alone. The Health Secretary Sajid Javid tells Sky News the delay is due to Omicron.
0: It's not coming today because we had a roadblock with Omicron. I had actually planned to publish the plan in, in December and we were almost there. We were agreeing it finally with the NHS and, and across government. Uh, but because of Omicron, we rightly changed our focus.
2: Instead, the government has announced a website to keep patients up to date. Well,
1: we've also had a warning from the Scottish Government's Energy Secretary, Michael Matheson, that there is a real risk that lives could be lost as a result of the hike in energy prices. Scotland is getting an additional £290 million of funding to help ease the problem of rising bills, with First Minister Nicola Sturgeon vowing that every penny would go towards helping ease the cost of living crisis. Well, joining us now to discuss is Carol Monaghan, who is Scottish national National Party MP for Glasgow North West. She is also its Westminster Spokesperson for Education, Armed Forces and Veterans. Carol, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Hello. We know that um, global wholesale prices are going up. This is a huge challenge to the UK, but to other countries too. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, unveiled this £9 billion package to try to ease the problem. I mean, what more can the government really do other than that? Well, there's
3: lots of things the government can do and things that the government are not doing. I mean, first of all, in Scotland, we have the highest energy costs anywhere in the UK. And this is is a um, part of the UK that actually generates more renewable energy than anywhere else. But these renewable companies are having to pay much higher tariffs to feed into the grid. It seems ridiculous that that companies that can actually be helping to solve the problem are been penalised in that way, whereas other companies are getting much lower connection charges. So the first thing they could do is look at that, look at the connection charges and ensure equity across the UK. That would be the first thing. We could also look at the levels of VAT on fuel. I mean, when... There was the whole chat about leaving the European Union. One of the things that was flagged up was the European Union was stopping us reducing VAT on fuel bills, which isn't the case, by the way. Many EU countries have reduced VAT much to a much greater extent than has happened here in the UK. But with VAT still high, this is money that goes straight into the Chancellor's pocket and comes straight out of um, the consumer's budget. So that could be looked at as well. So there, there are many things that could be considered. The energy cap could be kept in place for, for a longer period of time as well, particularly when people are feeling the pinch of, of higher inflation. So lots of things could be considered, but very little is. And to consider that, I mean, there's talk of £200 per household being given to help with energy bills, but bill payers are going to have to pay that back at £40 a year over the mm-hmm. next five years. It's really just delaying the problem. It's not actually tackling the problem. So we Car- need to look at this seriously.
2: Cara, what do you think of Labour's plan for a windfall tax on the profits of oil and gas companies?
3: Um, well, it's, quite, it's, it's, it's obviously quite interesting, but um, you have to consider what other things, the, the jobs that might be affected by that as well. What I would like to look at is a more fair, tax system, and certainly in Scotland we have a fairer tax system where people that are um, earning more will contribute more in tax. So I think we should be looking at that sort of thing as well. Um, I would need to know more about a windfall, windfall tax because obviously the oil and gas sector has to be supported as well and if we start taxing that it could be problematic. So I, I, I would worry slightly about that at this stage. I don't think it's the right time to do that at this stage but it might be something that we have to look at at another stage and of course we need to look at how we can support our renewable energy our renewable energy sector
1: okay but the government can't counteract what our global markets in terms of wholesale gas prices everybody is struggling with this every country in europe is struggling with this it's not just britain is it really fair to say that the government is not looking at all options you you can't fight the market here well,
3: not every country in Europe is actually a producer of gas, so i mean we have we have gas supplies in the North Sea that we can be using. We don't need to be paying um high prices for gas that's coming for example from from Russia. So we can be looking at how we we prevent the gas prices rising here in the u k um, but it's so a global
1: not- market for gas prices. It's not set by companies that are in Scotland.
3: It's not set by companies in Scotland, but when we are producing the gas here in the UK, when it's been produced off the coast of Scotland, we should be able to provide that at a better rate for the people actually living there that are working in this sector and are, are the closest recipients. This is not about putting putting up the cost of wholesale gas to Europe. This is about gas that can be um that, that we have here. So Gas companies should not be generating massive profit just because the wholesale gas price has increased. They should be looking at their um, responsibilities as well to the consumer for whom they serve.
2: I want to move on to talk about the uh, NHS. Recent Scottish A&E waiting times are the worst on record. Almost a third of patients across Scotland waiting more than the four-hour target, more than four hours Uh, waiting to get into A&E. Why is Scotland's uh, NHS underperforming so badly?
3: Well, Scotland's NHS actually is not underperforming at all. It's actually the best performing NHS in the UK. Um, And these four-hour waiting times are not uh, imposed on um, NHS trusts in England. So this is a target that's set by the Scottish Government. And Of course, there are issues just now, but these are issues that are caused by many things, including a shortage of people working in this sector because of Brexit, because the UK government has made it far more difficult to get people into health and social care. The people that would normally be coming from other parts of Europe are not able to come as easily as they once did, which is causing a staffing crisis, which we are seeing um, seeing manifest itself in um, in different aspects of healthcare.
1: So a lack of staffing. And let's also talk more broadly about Omicron. I wonder what your view is on the lockdown in Scotland. What did England get that call cool right in the end, not to lock down? to wait and see what happened with the Omicron wave, you know, in an attempt not to kind of disrupt people's lives and the economy even further. Scotland was much stricter and there was criticism that 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 disparity shouldn't have been, that Scotland made the wrong call.
3: I think when you're dealing... First of all, Scotland didn't lock down. There was no Mm. lockdown in Scotland. There were um, restrictions put on certain aspects, but throughout um, the Omicron wave... Restaurants, uh, hospitality remained open, so it's not it's not true to say that there was a lockdown. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, the one thing we should always do when dealing with a virus such as COVID is stay one ahead, one step ahead of it. Now, if that means that you take a decision that might be slightly stricter than someone else, and you get that wrong, then lives are not affected by that. If you you make a decision to open up much more widely and you get that wrong, that's Mm -hmm. far more problematic. So I think at all points, even with this virus, we should be taking the cautious approach rather than the reckless approach.
2: Um, Carl, I want to just ask you about the uh, government in Westminster's levelling up agenda. Do you worry that uh, a stronger voice for the regions of England, the north-east of England for instance uh, will mean a, a lesser voice for Scotland? Scotland's had a, has had a pretty uh, strong voice at the table for, for, for many years. Do you worry that other parts of England speaking up will mean less for Scotland?
3: Well, first of all, there's many people in Scotland that would argue that we haven't had a strong voice at the table. We do have MPs in Westminster, but when funding decisions are made, um, we have very little say over that. And the levelling up agenda is a a good example of that when the UK government have decided what pet projects they'll fund in Scotland without consulting with the Scottish government at all and actually running straight through the devolution agreement. So I I think there are many that would would actually question that for a start. But I I think um, regions of England should have much more say um, I believe in local democracy. I believe that the people living in those areas are best placed to make decisions about spending in those areas and best placed to decide what their area needs. And um, so, I think further devolution for regions of England is—it's got to be a positive thing for them. Um, however, we need to make sure that the cash has not been fired in from Westminster like a fairy godmother and there's also there's also other sort of more sinister aspects of I mean we heard that Tory MPs were talking about being blackmailed if they Uh didn't vote in a particular way they wouldn't get this cash we've not seen that before
2: Well, let's take a look at what else he's making news in the world of politics with our very own Leanne Gerins. Leanne, thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. Now, lots of stuff going on over the weekend, plenty of appointments at number 10. Just give us a snapshot of some of the key comments.
4: There were lots of key comments, but I want to start with some of the key appointments. So the Prime Minister has made two new appointments to his Downing Street team after five aides resigned last week. And this morning, the new director of communication, that's a Gitto Harry, he arrived and I just saw him walking into Downing Street and he had a really large Tesco's bag full of snacks. And when he asked what he was going to do with his first day, he said he's going to give the staff healthy snacks so I wonder how that's going down in number 10 and one appointment was Chief of Staff and that was a little bit controversial so that was Steve Barclay, and that's because he's juggling two other roles, he's going to be a Cabinet Minister and an MP but what's also interesting is Boris Johnson acted really quickly to appoint new people into his um, Downing Street team and this shows that he is trying to steady the ship another good comment came from a Charles Walker. Now he's a prominent member of the Conservative Party and he said Boris Johnson's removal from office is inevitable. Now Walker was speaking to the Observer newspaper over the weekend. It's important to note this is a left-wing newspaper but nevertheless it once again shows the current turmoil within the leading party at the moment. And guess what? Lots of people also came to his defence. And Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng did appeal to Conservative MPs to back the Prime Minister mm. and give him time and space to really deliver on his policies. After we have seen the number of letters trickle into the 1922 committee. And of course, as I just mentioned, advisers
1: leaving Downing Street. There's also, though, been a row around uh, the Prime Minister's wife, Carrie Johnson, and a new book about her, and some pushback on the treatment of women uh, in the media. Do you remember Carrie Johnson and
4: Boris Johnson? They got married in 2021. They've already had two children together. And I'm sure you all remember those pictures of her with no shoes on and that really glamorous flower crown on her wedding day. But I do digress back to the topic. Conservative peer Lord Ashcroft has written a new book on Carrie and it claims she influences her husband's decision-making. Chapters of the book are being released now in the Daily Mail. And this book comes... Comes at a really interesting time, amid claims Carrie was involved in rows linked to the prime minister, including suggestions she pushed for the luxury redecoration of their number 10 Downing Street flat. A lot of chat about wallpaper during this time, and rumours that she was key in the evacuation of animals from the Nowzad charity in Kabul in Afghanistan. However, she has had support, and a lot of that's come from the house secretary, who has said attacks on. Carrie. Carrie Johnson, are sexist and misogynistic. Sajid Javid did make that point to the BBC and Carrie herself has hit back, saying she is a target of a brutal briefing campaign by Johnson's enemies. She added she's a private individual who plays no role in the government. David Cameron's wife, Samantha, said last year that descriptions of Carrie as Princess Nutnut by allies of former aide Dominic Cummings were also sexist. Exist. And remember, 33-year-old Carrie did previously work for the Conservative Party as a press officer.
2: Mm. that. So uh, suitcases of booze have been replaced by uh, Tesco bags full of healthy snacks and soft drinks. I well, know that's going to go down. At I always 10. think.
4: Um a little box of chocolates does well not look your chocolates oh, but maybe I don't something. know if that's allowed <laughs> No, it's not allowed at the moment
2: <laughs> and thanks so much for joining us
1: That is Bloomberg's Leanne Gerrans they're just taking us through the latest uh, political commentary Now let's move on Talk about Northern Ireland politics it's once again in turmoil after the resignation of Paul Givard as First Minister last week which automatically meant that Michelle O'Neill lost her position as Deputy First Minister Now MPs in Westminster are trying to prevent a collapse of the Northern Irish Assembly, the DUP's uh, given was pulled from Stormont in protest. Why? Well, against the Northern Ireland Trade Protocol, which has been a thorny issue for many, many months. Joining us now is Aidan Connolly, who is from the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium. And you've been a regular to tell us about what's happening on the ground, Aidan. There is, firstly, though, a lot of concern about the functioning of Stormont, just Bring us up to date about the situation and why that political crisis is so important.
0: Well, as my father always says, if there's not a political uh, crisis in Stormont, wait 10 minutes and there'll be one. <laughs> um, but what's really important about what's happening at the moment is that we still need the Assembly to be functioning. are 28 bills, uh, including the budget bill, the climate action bill that need to go through uh, that uh, assembly, need to be voted on, need to get, get get royal assent before the assembly is due to fall anyway at the end of March because we're heading into an election in early May. What has happened is that the uh, First Minister, Paul Gibbon, has resigned and because of the way that the Good Friday Agreement and the Stormont Agreement is written. Uh, the, uh, there is uh, our some St. boundaries. And Stormont agreements are, are written. It means that uh, the Deputy First Minister has to resign as well. Now that means there cannot be a full functioning executive. Mm. Uh, but what that does mean is that ministers can continue uh, to make individual decisions uh, that are not cross-reaching, that are not cross-departmental for their own uh, departments. For for a short while. Now, that only should last for 11 days, and then the Assembly is due to fall. However, there is legislation uh, going through both the Commons and the Lords at the minute um, to allow the Secretary of State to allow the Assembly uh, to go on for for several weeks and and, and longer um, to basically limp on without a First and and Deputy First Minister. And one of the amendments through the Lords is aiming uh, to have that uh, legislation be represented. Perspectives would would actually cover the period that we're in now uh, that uh, Paul Given has resigned.
2: So it sounds like there, there is some functioning of the executive, but but uh, but not fully. Now, just talk us through uh, the situation with the protocol and how that is affecting things in, in Northern Ireland.
0: Well, I I suppose one of the big questions that's been asked in in Northern Ireland, which I couldn't possibly answer, is whether this is just a a bit of a political stunt. Quite simply, at the moment, we are in the middle of grace periods. Those grace periods are open-ended, which means that there is not full implementation of the protocol, that you don't have to have those expensive export health certificates, and that other customs work, such as on parcels, doesn't need uh, to be done in, in the same way. There are still customs burdens. There are still things called STAMI, which is the the, the scheme for uh, moving agri-food products to Northern Ireland, which is basically Mm -hmm. a self adaptation form, which makes things a a, a lot easier. But we're not there as to full implementation. So I think there was some speculation that the DUP were were, were going to do something ahead of uh, the election. But for us in business there's two real problems here. Firstly, it puts pressure on those talks, which are ongoing, uh, between the EU and and the UK talks, which we really need to work, because the only way we're going to get a a solution to this is if it's agreed uh, by both sides. The other problem with this is that it looks really bad, and you've got to remember, for us to get the best out of the protocol, that dual market access, we need to get foreign direct investment, and that investment uh, those decisions are taken now for 18, 24, 36 months in advance. But so it's not just affecting now, it's affecting uh, investment for the next three years.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is this question then about the DUP and whether it is a stunt or not. That is the word that some have used about it. it but the DUP doesn't want the protocol at all. The point is that the DUP rejects it, which is impossible or leaves, you know, the region and the uh, the post-Brexit Britain in an impossible situation. So what do you expect or want from the Sefcovich Trust meetings? Again, there's another meeting this week. Uh, How are they going to resolve this issue?
0: Well, to be fair, the Trust and Sefcovich relationship has uh, been building quite uh, well over this past few weeks. I think the fact that their first meeting was... Uh, three or four hours of getting to know you rather than straight yeah. into business was a good indication of, of, of a different change in, in attitude. What business wants to see is quite simple. Um, it, it hasn't changed over the past three years. We want stability. We want certainty of a long-term solution. We want simplicity. That means doing things digitally as well as removing frictions, removing things like supplementary declarations that aren't really needed if you're removing goods from gbd but under the protocol, you have to do them. And then lastly, we want affordability we have to keep our businesses competitive and keep uh, choice and, and affordability, really keep those costs down for Northern Ireland consumers who have half of the discretionary income of, of, of Great British households. Now, over this past couple of weeks, I've, I've been looking up to speak to, to Liz Truss, to Chris Heaton Harris, who's the, the Minister for State for Foreign Affairs, as well as to Vice President Sefcovic and the European uh, Commission. And, and there seems to be a, a real impetus to make uh, progress. Uh, one of the most interesting things that Liz Truss said was that, you know, she wants to implement uh, the principles of the command paper rather than the command paper. And, and that's really so a, a change in
1: tone. Just just briefly, does the DUP have to bend then? Um, they can't, they won't be able to accomplish what they want, which is to have no protocol at all, surely?
0: Well, it's an international agreement and the EU is very adamant that they uh, will not be able to uh, accept that there are being a complete removal of, of the protocol. I think the negotiations where they are now is at a very, uh, uh, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's at a crux, a pivotal moment for them because there needs to be movement on, on both sides. Business can quite simply see uh, where the solutions are and there's several options for solutions and, and those landing zones that people talk about. What we need to see on both sides is the political will to deliver them. Politics got us into this. Politics is going to have to get us out.
2: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.